Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we praise your name. We thank you, Lord, that you are a just God. You're a life-giving God. Father, that you have pursued us despite our sin. Not just our sin in action, but Father, our sin as deep down as our hearts. And we thank you, Lord, that your gospel work uh, touches each part of our sinfulness to change us completely. But Lord, we know that because of the gospel, our lives need to be changed as well. Pray, Heavenly Father, that as we look at this passage today and we reflect on your gospel, that not only our actions would change, but Father, our heart, our, our trusts, Lord, our, our, even our doubts, Father, would be changed according to your will as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I attended my first ever murder mystery night. Yay. Uh, these are all the rage. If you don't know what a murder mystery is, it's like this big game deal. A whole bunch of grown adults. They dress up and they pretend to be other people for like four hours. And it's really, uh, it's not my jam. But uh, just long story short, I wasn't the murderer, right? But usually have a meal in there somewhere or whatever. But the, the whole entire evening is just this, this big game. It's just this big game to figure out who, who did it, who, who murdered the dead person, right? And it's fun. It is fun. And it does take a lot of time. And again, it's not my jam. But uh, the, the whole entire reason that everybody's there, the whole entire reason that everybody's there to have fun is to just figure out the big mystery. Who done it, right? Who done it? Now that was at my brother's house. And that was the night. But the question remains, even here at church, who's the murderer? Uh, who's done it? At uh, church... We don't really look around and say, man, I got that guy pegged. I know it's him. Day one. He wears socks to bed. Definitely, definitely murderer. Right? I, I, but today, Jesus himself is going to ask the question, who of you has ever murdered your brother or sister? And so, yes, we joke around about the murder mystery thing, but this is a very serious question. Something that Jesus has for us. And his answer is shocking. It's each and every one of us. Each and every one of us, in God's eyes, is a convicted murderer. Now, that's really, really bad news. <laughs> and no, the police are not on the way. It's, but we do understand that in God's kingdom, the way that he has offered himself up for us, the way that he has his kingdom set up, and the ways his expectations for us, that murder, and by default, anger as well, have no place, no place in our hearts and in our actions. So the big idea for this morning is simple. Pursue reconciliation in your relationships. Pursue reconciliation in your relationships. Look at me with verse 21 here. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. Jesus here is quoting the Old Testament. Uh, this command appears many times. Probably your Bible has tons of footnotes on just where to find this command. It's not a hidden command. It is blatant and it is real. Do not murder. Do not take the life of someone else. Jesus continues, and whoever does murder will be subject to judgment. Jesus here, again, is, is quoting the Old Testament and following it up with just what we all know to be true. 
that murder, taking the life of someone else, is absolutely, beyond the shadow of a doubt, evil. And because it's evil, it deserves the strictest judgment. It deserves the greatest punishment. And we would agree with Jesus. I hope we would agree with Jesus because no sin is more obviously sinful than taking another person's life. And no sin is more obvious in its demand for justice than when somebody takes the life of another person. I don't mean to belittle anybody's intelligence here, but let's just ask the question real simply this morning. Why? Why is murder such a bad thing? If you have the bandwidth, you can flip over to Genesis chapter 9. And we're looking at God's words to Noah after God wiped all the wickedness off the face of the earth. He's done away with all the terrible people on the earth, so to say, right? And now, as God is reinstating the new world with his new Adam, in a sense, Noah, he's giving Noah just the breakdown, just what does it look like to live in my world? So chapter 9, verse 6 says this. Actually, you can start in verse 5. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. So again, God is saying here, this is a serious deal, right? And has a serious consequence. Let's ask why. Verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood... By humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. Here we get to peel back the layers a little bit and just see why murder is such a terrible thing. It's not just an evil act against somebody. It's actually an evil act against God himself. God has created humans to reflect his image. Each and every one of us has that divine design to show the glory of God in everything that we do. So to murder, to disobey God, and to take the life of another image bearer, again, isn't just against that person, it is against God's design. But I would even say, right, not only an attack against God's design, but we could peel back the layers just one more time. What is going on inside a person's heart when they decide their best option is to take the life of someone else? Murder is the evil belief that you are more worthy of life than someone else. Murder is the evil belief that you are more worthy of life than someone else. We'll get into it a little bit later, but this is just rife with doubt. It's just rife with doubt. So make no mistake, murder is a serious action against others. It's a serious action against God and his design. And so God must, because he's a holy God, he must take serious action against it. Now, up until this point, hopefully I've said nothing new and nothing too crazy. But Jesus is about to open up a can of worms on us here in verse 22. Look at verse 22. But I tell you, so Jesus here isn't going to rewrite the Old Testament law. What he's doing is he's going to reveal the deeper intent here of this command. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
Okay. So what's going on? Jesus here is saying that anger and murder are in the same vein. They're the same. And because they're the same, they deserve the same judgment. That God himself reserves the same judgment and the same punishment for the same evil act. The true intent of the law isn't just to prohibit the action of murder. The true intent of the law is to check our hearts to say, am I angry? Am I angry? Do I desire to take someone's life? Even though I would never do it, would I desire to do it? Jesus continues on. It says, not even just if anybody is angry with his brother or sister, but look at this, two more things. Continuing in verse 22, whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. So if you even use your words against a brother or sister, if you would even say angry things, if you are fueled by anger vocally towards a brother or sister, then you'd be subject to the courts. And then third and finally, whoever says you fool, which again, very similar to this insult, will be subject to hellfire. Jesus just surprises us in two ways. The first way is this. He condemns each and every one of us as a murderer. Happy Sunday morning, right? (laughs) But the second part is this. Anger is not a little thing. Uh, You can see that really the anger here in verse 22, to be angry at your brother or sister, that's part of the heart. But then also whoever insults or says, you fool, whoever vocally attacks a brother and sister, uh, the, the consequences get steeper. You're not just talking about uh, judgment as in just like the court, the public court, right? You know, wow, he was really angry against that guy. I guess I think less about him now. It's not just that. And it's not just being subject to the court. Well, he was so angry. Now he got arrested and now he's before the courts. But actually, third, right? This person who chooses to be angry is subject to hellfire. That's how serious God takes our sin of anger. And we ask after the question here, why? Because I think if we're being honest, anger really doesn't elicit the same response as murder does. And I think in a lot of ways, anger is a less obvious sin than murder. And it's no sin, or I should say, a no sin less obviously demands justice than anger. I mean, sure, there's these grand outbursts of anger. Right? They were like, whoa, all right, calm down, guy. Right? Uh, Those are those. But yet, there is so many subtle ways that anger works itself into our hearts and out through our words. What about bitterness? That long standing, how could you say it? Enemy, right? The long standing aggressiveness towards them. You never say anything, never, never even do anything, but bitterness. What about gossip? To talk to others around you about how this person's living. How about the anger that is displayed in retreating? This person hurt me, I'm out. All right, I'm done, I'm gone. How about control? They thwarted my control one time, but now I'm double angry. So now I got double control, right? How about bad attitudes? Just having an angry attitude. And even the passage tells us foul words against other people. Unkindness, ungentleness, harshness, hatred. 
The outbursts are easy to identify, but those heart level lingering, maybe even say soft angers that we just dismiss. God's looking at those as well. We ask the same question as we did murder. Why does God take it so seriously? Is it really actually that big of a deal? Well, if murder is the belief that you are more worthy of life than somebody else, anger is very similar. It's the belief that you are more worthy of justice than somebody else. You are more worthy of justice than somebody else. You need not look any further than your own home to figure this out. Kids, man, they love disobeying. They disobey all the time, right? What is our responsibility? <laughs> I'm speaking to myself here. They're, disobeying. They're opposing my law. They deserve justice, big time, right? They deserve it. And so how am I going to fulfill my need for justice? Oh, I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get angry. I might do the outburst thing, but I might be bitter. I might retreat from them. I might be unkind to them. I might use a foul word to their face or behind their back, whatever it might be, who knows. But because of my desire for justice, I am going to fulfill that with my own anger. You see? Anger is a belief that you're more worthy of justice than somebody else. Kids, you're not free from this either. Parents are squares. They limit my fun left and right. I want to do this till 3 a.m. And my parents say, no, you need to be back by whatever time. Well, that's no fun. So because they are not doing what I want them to do, they deserve justice. Because they're not letting me have the fun that I want, because they're not letting me do what I want, they deserve my anger. They deserve my anger. And again, it might not be too terrible. I might not go slash the tires of my parents' minivan. That might not be it. But again, the bitterness. What would you say to your friends behind your parents' back about the way that your parents are parenting you? I mean, in all these ways, anger seeps, it boils up in our hearts. We need to take it seriously because God takes it seriously. Even just one step deeper than this, peeling back the layer of anger one more time, and murder's the same way. In murder and anger, what we're saying is, God's not meeting my needs. He's not doing what I want him to do. So who can I turn to in order to get what I want? Oh, me. I'll do it. I will be God. In both murder and anger, we need to see that shift. We need to see how a person who chooses to murder, but also a person who chooses to be angry, is kind of saying to God, hey, off the throne for one second. I know who you are. I know everything you've promised, but in this moment, I feel like I understand the situation better than you do, and so I will be you. I know God is the giver and taker of life, but in this moment, I take that. I will be the one who will give or take life. I decide. I know God is the one who gives and takes justice, but in this moment, I know better than God does, and so I will dispense my justice. I will do a better job than God will. Again, murder and anger are rife with doubt. So, being God is not godliness. We need to think about that. Being God is not godliness. 
It's actually idolatry. If we think our sinful anger, if we think our sinful murder is going to do the righteous job that God deserves, or I deserve God for due to me, then that is simply me taking God's spot. Being God is not godliness, it is idolatry, and therefore the opposite of godliness. Is there such thing as righteous anger? Yes, there is such thing as righteous anger. Do we ever get angry righteously? I'm going to say most likely no. The big difference between righteous anger and sinful anger is whose glory is it truly ultimately for? If it's for God's glory to display God's justice and God's gift of life and God's sovereignty over all things, if it's meant to display a trust in who God is, no matter what the situation is, that's righteous anger. We can be angry about gigantic evil things. We can. But if it's for our glory, then that is sinful anger. So a question for each and every one of us, because you probably walked into the room not thinking that you're a murderer, but now you're saying, well, I get angry all the time, so I guess I'm a murderer, right? How do you idolize yourself using anger? If anger is a tool of self-idolatry, then to think about how, how do I use it? What am I trying to gain from my angry outbursts? What am I trying to gain from harboring this emotion toward my brother or sister? What am I trying to do, accomplish? What are my goals? How am I reflecting on God and his promises? How do you idolize yourself through anger? We need to make no mistake this morning. Anger is a serious action against God's design and God himself. So God takes it seriously and takes serious action against it. So what does somebody do if they find out that they are an angry person. I think there's three helpful things that we can do here. Each one of them starts with R. Great. First is this. Recognize the situation. Recognize the situation. Uh, this is just so helpful. Uh, anger blinds, right? Sometimes we just, we don't even know which way is up, but we know which way is attack, right? So to slow down and to think about what's actually going on in the situation, to recognize the situation. What are the facts? How did I get here? Right? How all of a sudden do I have this big gigantic emotion in me? What is my intention? If I were to dispense my anger, what am I hoping to achieve? Another question is, what was my role? Oftentimes we get angry over things that we had a role in. And we just want to blame everybody else around us. But that's not the case. Usually we have a hand in it ourselves. What am I believing about God and his promises in this situation? There's just basic questions that just slow us down to think about the reality of the situation. Because oftentimes, anger as a sin is blinded to God's glory. This just helps us refocus ourselves on who God is, the sovereign, just God over everything. Secondly, after recognize the situation is recall the gospel. Recall the gospel. We just need to think about God's holiness in the moments when we think we are the Holy One. To say, okay, what did God do for his actual enemies? Again, anger blinds and all of a sudden we just think everybody's our enemy. But what did God actually do for those who are actually his enemy? To think about, as we were singing, right? That Christ paid the cost. He paid the cost. To bring us to himself. He knew better than any of us know. How much anger. How much wrath. 
we deserve because of our sin. And yet, instead of dispensing it over and over and over again in an eternity of hell fire, what does he do? He sends Jesus. Gentle. Kind. Loving. To die for our sin. To rescue us. To forgive us. To raise again, offering us only what he could offer us. Reconciliation. It's through Jesus that not only are we forgiven, but we're restored to God. When we recall the gospel, we recall God's work of reconciliation. And that leads into the third thing. We recognize the situation, we recall the gospel, but then, of course, we have to reflect God's character. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. What does it look like for a believer to live out godliness? What does kingdom living look like? Well, it looks like godly character. So we reflect God's character. And in this specific case, we're going to pursue reconciliation. Reconciliation is a gigantic word. I can never spell it right the first time. Microsoft Word makes sure that I know I am really unable to spell it. But what is it? Well, if forgiveness is the promise to love someone despite hurt, right? When you say, I forgive you, what you're doing is you're making a promise. Though we all in the room know what you've done against me, I am now forgiving you. I'm promising you that I am going to continue loving you, even though, again, we all know what happened. Reconciliation is the next step. It's actually the practical outworking of that love. It's to say, all right, I made that promise, but now I'm going to follow through on that promise. I promised to love you, but now I'm actually going to take the steps necessary to love you. Reconciliation is the pursuit of God's people. Without reconciliation, it's just an empty promise. Uh, We're so thankful that we live on this side of the cross. Because with God's promises, right, and yet no action from God, would we even know that he loves us? But because Christ came, we have this actionable love that God has provided for us. We resemble that in our relationships by pursuing reconciliation instead of anger and murder. We pursue reconciliation instead of anger. Now, reconciliation looks different to a lot of different relationships because all of our relationships look unique. It's going to look different inside of our marriages. It's going to look different with our kids. It's going to look different in the office. It's going to look different all over the place. So thankfully, Jesus gives us two examples of what gospel-influenced reconciliation looks like. Uh, We're just going to read through them here, uh, and then I'm just going to pull out three things from each of them. No, they don't all start with R like the other ones, but uh, hopefully these are wisdom guidelines for how we can effectively pursue reconciliation in our relationships. So verse 23, so if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. All right, so Jesus is saying, example number one, what does it look like to work reconciliation out in our relationships? Well, earlier in the passage, but now also we see this term brother or sister. This is probably a reference to other believers. 
But I think it's safe to say we could also just say this could refer to your family as well. Those who are close to you, specifically those who believe in God as you do. So inside of those relationships, what does it look like to pursue reconciliation? The first one is this. If you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there, right there in front of the altar. And then what? Leave, (laughs) go, and be reconciled. The first thing here about the wisdom of reconciliation is to do it immediately. We get this image of this person who is in a very, very important, structured, necessary part of Israelite life. And he puts it aside immediately, right in the middle of his sacrificial right. He said, okay, I I have something bigger to do. I have something better to do. I got to go do it right now. So the first measure of wisdom here in pursuing reconciliation with other believers is to do so immediately. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do what it takes to reconcile quickly. Do it immediately. Maybe you can think about some some, uh, past examples, situations where you have postponed reconciliation. To what cost did postponing help? Was it easier to pick up the phone? Was it easier to meet at a Panera? Was it easier to do something like that than to push it off, push it off, and push it off? Jesus' first piece of wisdom here is to do so immediately. A second piece of wisdom is this. Though the cost may be high, it's necessary. Jesus here, of course, at the Sermon on the Mount is somewhere in Galilee. And between Galilee and Jerusalem, where all the sacrifices were taken, is about an eight-day travel. I don't have a map for you. I apologize. But we're just going to have to work with our imaginations. So think about that. Here, right in the middle of his sacrifice, this guy is going to put that on pause to go take an eight-day trek. Whatever the cost is to make eight days, five dollars, I don't know. But he's going to do it. And then he's going to come back and he's going to finish his uh, his sacrifice. This shows us that not only are we supposed to do it immediately, we are supposed to pay the cost. And man, reconciliation, it has a high cost. I just wonder, have we ever been stopped because we just thought that the cost is too high? It's too high social cost. It's too much gas. I don't want to pick up the phone. Whatever it might be, has the cost been too high in our hearts to pursue reconciliation with a brother or sister? So we pursue reconciliation immediately. We pay the cost, even if it's high. And then third, again, this is amazing. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Here, the believer remembers that somebody else has something against you. The person who's hangry here, hangry, the person who's angry here, Uh, is not the person who has wronged. Here, the believer is being proactive. The believer is being proactive. He or she is thinking to himself, herself, I know this relationship right now is ruptured. It might not be my fault. It might be my fault. But I know one way or another, my brother or sister has something against me. I'll be proactive. I will be proactive. And again, that is just a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because here we are as sinners, unable to get back to God's glory. And yet God was proactive for us to send Jesus to die for our sin, to restore us, to reconcile us to him. So we do it immediately. 
We pay whatever cost it takes to pursue reconciliation, and we're even proactive, proactive to restore relationships, even if it's somebody else who has wronged us or if it's somebody else who might be angry toward us. I think what Jesus is getting at overall here is that unresolved anger, unresolved anger between believers ruptures fellowship. Here, Jesus is saying, it's better for you to leave your sacrifice on the altar to go restore your relationship with your your fellow believer, right? Here, he's showing the priority. It It restores fellowship greater through reconciliation than to continue this rite of sacrifice. Unresolved anger between Christians ruptures fellowship. So there's a real simple question for us today. Is there anybody here at Green Pond? That you need to pursue reconciliation with. Is there anybody inside this church family that you know there's something rupturing fellowship between you two and you need to pursue reconciliation? What would it look like to do that immediately? Not right now, I'm still talking. But what would it look like to do it immediately? What would it look like to pay the cost? What would it look like to pay the cost, the social cost, monetary cost, whatever it might be, to do that? What would it look like to be proactive in that? Jesus here asks us believers to pursue reconciliation first before pursuing anger or anything else. But Jesus' second example broadens the rung out way further. And again, we might be a little shocked at this. Verse 25 says this, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary. Notice how subtly Jesus has gone from brother and sister to mortal enemy. Right? Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court, or that your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Jesus here is commanding us to pursue reconciliation with our adversaries, with our enemies. With those who blatantly, overtly, maybe even subtly, seek our harm. We see how gospel living does have a high cost. We see how tough it can be to pursue reconciliation. In the same way, I kind of want to pull three things out of this. Three wisdom things as it looks like to pursue reconciliation with your adversary. First is this. It's never too late to pursue reconciliation. Look at verse 25 again. Reach a settlement quickly. There's that immediacy again of it, right? While while you are with your adversary, while you're on the way with him to court. So this is like the Hail Mary. This is the last ditch effort. You are literally walking next to the person who's bringing you to court. And the court's right there. And you're like, okay, we need to come to a deal. We need to come to a deal. We need to resolve. We need to restore our relationship. It's never too late to pursue reconciliation. I think about this as I think about uh, opportunities in the past that I've given up on uh, reconciliation with. And my thought is that it's just too far gone, right? It's just too far gone in time. Jesus says, no, it's never too far gone. Even down to the last possible moment, we as believers pursue reconciliation with those around us. So we never, or it's never too late to pursue reconciliation. Secondly, uh, it's better. It's better for them to know, for our enemies to know God's reconciliation than human vindication. 
Look again at this passage, right? While you're on the way to human court, your adversary will hand you over to the judge, to the judge, to the officer, and you will be thrown in prison. The adversary wins. He wins. And yet, even if he wins in the human courts, it is far better for him to know reconciliation with God. It is better for your worst enemy to know God's love for them and the way that you talk and the way that you act and the way that you pursue reconciliation than for that person to win any court battle for any amount of money. It's better for our adversaries to know God's reconciliation than any human level victory. So it's never too late to pursue reconciliation. It's better for them to know God's reconciliation than anything else. And then lastly, it's better for you to face God's judgment than human judgment. Again, we're talking to believers here, but look at the last verse, verse 26. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. This is a double way for Jesus to say the same exact thing. First of all, you will never get out of human court until you do your time. That's just a fact, right? You could be a super nice guy and get out a little early, I guess. But you are going to pay the penalty that is due you for whatever action you take. But Jesus is also here referring to that eternal judgment. The one where we can't pay every last penny. The one where if you are stuck in your sin, unrepentant to the Lord, that there is this, as verse 22 says, a hellfire. And so Jesus here in doing this double talk is saying, not only is it better for you to pursue reconciliation and get out of human court trouble, punishment, it is far better for you to be obedient into your heart, to not pursue the anger, to not pursue the murder, to pursue God's ways, kingdom living, this wholeness of having a restored relationship with him and escape God's final punishment. It's better for you to face God's judgment, knowing that you did everything you could to recycle, uh, not recycle, oh man, reconcile, <laughs> reconcile the relationships around you. It's better to be faithful to God than unfaithful to God. It's better to show your faithfulness in God in doing the hard work of pursuing reconciliation, even with your worst enemy, than to face human judgment or even God's lasting judgment. I think what Jesus is getting at here about talking with the adversary is that we're talking about the adversary is that reconciliation shows the world that there is a greater love than self-love. There's a greater love than self-love. And our effort as believers to work out God's ministry of reconciliation in the world around us, not just in our families and not just in our church, but in everybody, every relationship that we have, we pursue reconciliation so that so that people around us would know that God loves them and that there is a way of escaping the hellfire destined for even the slightest person who gets angry. I should say the person who gets angry, just the slightest. So a simple question once again, is there anyone outside of your family, anyone outside of the church, anyone outside of God's fold that you need to pursue reconciliation with? Is there anybody outside of God's family or outside of your family that you need to pursue reconciliation with? God gives us the tools. He gives us the wisdom. He gives us the spirit to do it. Anger is a real and present danger, right? Oftentimes, uh, anger is defined as a fire consuming all that is thrown in it. 
This morning, Jesus is asking us to give up on our anger, to be done with it, to pursue the better way, to pursue reconciliation. I'm thinking that if we imagine ourselves as these all-consuming, all-burning, justice-decreeing fires, and then just to simply ask those closest around us, what have I consumed in a relationship with you? It would help us to understand just what, in our hearts, we are choosing to doubt in God. Not that we can ever burn up God or anything like that, But in our hearts, we can choose to burn up the truth of God. So Jesus here is encouraging us to give up on our anger, to give up on the fiery furnace of our own desire for justice, to give up on our belief that we can do it on our own, and to trust him and to humbly pursue reconciliation with those around us, no matter the cost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, again, we thank you for the pinpoint accuracy of your word. Lord, that you are gracious, not just to point out our sin. Father, not just to tell us that there's condemnation waiting for even just the slightest, smallest sin. But Father, to show us through the truth of the gospel, how you have done everything required to reconcile us sinners to you, a perfect and holy God. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. We pray, Father, that the spirit would work in our hearts, to bring, or bring about change, not just in our hearts, but in our relationships as well. Pray, Lord, that we would give up on anger as husbands, as wives, as kids, as a church, as employees, whatever it might be, or that we would give up on anger and we would pursue the better way of reconciliation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.